Let's turn back now to First Peter and chapter number 4 and reading at verse 7. First Peter 4 and at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so on down to verse number 11. We have continued to see from this letter the way in which Peter is instructing his readers and his hearers as far as living life in the world is for the Christian believer and the way in which the Christian believer must suffer for his or her faith and suffering in the world because the gospel itself is countercultural. It goes directly against the society and the world in which they lived, as it does for ourselves. And once we come to faith in the Lord Jesus, we are called out of the culture in which we live to live the culture that belongs to God's kingdom and to the kingdom of heaven to which we are going. We are distinct and we are separate and the readers here, the hearers here, felt as if they were in exile and that's what they were because they weren't where they were going to be as the people of God. They had to live in this world. And in the midst of that world, they suffered, and he wants to encourage them by placing their suffering in the context of where they are going and also in the context of what Christ has done for them. When we come to verse number 7 in this chapter, there's a change of focus. And instead of speaking to the Christian believers as to how they are to manage their relationship with the world, he changes to look at themselves as the Christian community. And he wants them to see that the strength of the community itself comes from within, and if the community is rightly ordered within, then it will be strong and able to live in the world in which they are found. And that's a great shift, and it does remind us of the importance of our own personal relationship with God and how we live that, and the importance of our corporate and church life, how we live together as those who are the people of God. There is a caption taken from Pogo, who, which was a, a comic strip in the USA back in the 1940s and 1950s, and the caption goes like this, we have met the enemy and he is us. And there is something in that for us today as we go forward to look at this chapter that our failing so often is our own weaknesses and not the strength of the opposition we have in the world. Those of us who are, who are sportsmen or women or who play football will understand that the own, goal, the own goal is the most shameful thing. It really lets us all down. And as the church of Jesus, we want to guard against these kind of own goals. And we want to realize that the danger is always there that when we look for the enemy, that the enemy is ourselves. And so bearing that in mind, 
We want to look at these verses today and to think of the order of life in the Christian community and to see the way in which that is where the strength of the people of God lies. We want to see, first of all, that there is dependence. And everything that happens here is under the perspective, under the banner of the end of all things is at hand. It's round the corner, as we mentioned in the children's address. We are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. We are waiting for the judgment of this world. We are waiting for the people of God to enter into the life of the Spirit of God, as God does himself in verse 6. We are waiting for all of these things. They are round the corner. And the fact that these things are round the corner should sharpen their minds and should sharpen our minds and our focus. And we see here the first thing, that there is a word about dependence. And we see that in verse number 7. Therefore, because the end is imminent, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He wants them to be good judges of their circumstances. He wants them to stay alert. He wants them to do so through their understanding of the word of God. Be self-controlled. It certainly speaks about restraining, of holding back, of, of being temperate, of being, of being rational. It speaks of all of these intellectual things that speak of, of moderation and self-control. And the overriding thing in self-control is the intellectual movement that we have in engaging with circumstances, in engaging with the Word of God, and the ability to see things clearly for what they are. And that's something that they were very much in need of. Something that we are so much in need of ourselves. To see things clearly... And in the light of seeing things clearly, to act in a way which is appropriate for the circumstances. We saw in a reading in in the the Gospel of Matthew, the, the way in which there was confusion. There would be a variety of voices. There would be messages going out, Christ is here and Christ is there. Don't listen to them. They they needed to be alert. They needed not to be confused. They need to understand their circumstances. And we ourselves need exactly the same thing. We need to understand the word of God. To understand it, we need to be familiar with what it says. And taking our understanding of the word of God as the lens through which we see the world in which we live. And in that kind of movement intellectually to to be able to make the right decisions and to carry out the right kind of actions and responses. And our failing so often is that we don't know the Bible. And none of us know it in its entirety and in its detail the way that we should. But our weakness or the first weakness is that we don't know our Bibles. And because we don't know the Word of God, 
then we cannot use it as the lens for what's around us. We, we have a very patchy kind of understanding of the Word of God. And when we want to see the world in which we live through the lens of the Bible, there are so many gaps that we get confused. We're not seeing it clearly because we're not understanding it the way that we should. That is, we're not seeing our circumstances clearly. We need to be self-controlled. And we also need to be sober-minded. It's not really anything to do with being intoxicated with alcohol. That's what's behind it. But it speaks fully of, of clarity of mind that leaves us alert to our circumstances. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 5 where he's speaking about the very same thing, about his own return. Do not sleep as others do. Keep awake and be sober. Be alert. Be alert to what's happening. Be alert to what the Bible is saying. And be alert as to how all of these things fit together. It's our need to know and to be awake. To be readers of the Bible. To be students of the Word of God. And at the same time to be alert to the situation in which we find ourselves as those who are going quickly to the end of time and to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to be alert, aware, and they had to understand. In the first chapter, we see the way Paul is asking them to, to prepare their minds for action. And to wait patiently for the, the grace that is going to come to them in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preparing their minds. We will read in, in the Gospel of Luke to, to illustrate something of, of, of what's happening here. We, we see the person who was unwell sitting at the feet of Jesus. Clothed and in his right mind. He was in the right place with the right person. He had the healing and he had the presence. And that, that's where, in a symbolic way, we are to find ourselves sitting, learning at the feet of Jesus from his word in our right minds. And through that, being on our guard at every step that we take, that we are not in any way led astray. Don't be alarmed, says Jesus. In other words, don't be confused by all the false messages. And the way to avoid the confusion is to understand what the Word says and to be alert to what Jesus is saying in it and to apply that in our current circumstances. What does that have to do with dependence? Well, Peter says that they are to do all of these things, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The alertness has to do with watching and praying. And unless there is that understanding of the Word of God and that alertness, our prayer life will not be the same. 
That is the, the, the prayer life that is the mark of the people of God. That is a distinctive of the, the church of Jesus Christ in the world. That, that prayer life that not only permeates its existence, but that carries the people of God along on their journey to the end of the age. It's their communion with God. It's the way that we, we talk with God in our prayers. All of these things they are to do for the sake of their prayers. And in chapter 3, Peter speaks about the way in which their prayers may not be hindered. Having an obstacle in the way. Having the, an, an impediment for, for the advancing army to have something in the way that will stop their advancement and that it will leave other people safe. And it's a similar thing here that unless we are self-controlled and, and sober-minded, then there will be an obstacle to us in our prayer life. And where these things are present, it removes the obstacles and then we know what to pray for. What to pray for ourselves, or to pray for others. Simply, what to pray for to God to do in the time that remains. And there's, there's nothing like, like a deadline to focus our minds. And there's nothing like a deadline to focus our prayers. Put me in a place where, where I'm under threat. And suddenly the, the engine room of prayer within me moves into action immediately. And, and if that is the case, why is it not the case with, with myself and with yourselves? Why is it not the case? Because we know that the return of Jesus is imminent. Here is the recipe for ensuring that that room of prayer in our own hearts and in the, the Christian community is active, is mobilized, is understanding what, what we need from God because we understand where we are going. And it's understanding that God is able to do what we pray to him for. And that, of course, is, is crucial and critical to, to our prayer life, that we believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that we believe that he is able to do far and above what we can ask or even think. Dependence. Imagine today how much this kind of activity and each and every one of us would transform us as the people of God and as the church of Jesus. How much this kind of dependence would give an urgency to our prayer for God to act in the short time that we, that we have remaining in this world, for God to act in, in keeping his people safe, for God to act in, in saving those who are lost, for God to act in building up his church. Can we not think together of, of the, the imminence of the, the return of the Lord Jesus? And can we not that, let that spark 
this inner prayer that we will find together the energy to cry to God and God has promised to answer that. And one of the commentators on this passage said, let me put it this way. The mark of a Christian at the end of the age is a person on his or her knees in prayer. Could it be that the strength of our private prayer life is an indication of our progress in self-control and sober-mindedness? Let us examine ourselves. Let us be truthful to, to what we discover. And let us be inspired by, by the call of the Word of God today to be dependent upon God and to be dependent upon God through this very process of engagement with God's Word and engagement with God in our prayer life. Dependence. Secondly, there is a need for devotion. And, and the way in which Peter writes here, there is a priority that goes even away and above beyond their need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Something else is more important than that. What could possibly be more important than doing something for the sake of our prayers? Well, the most important thing in Peter's words is the relationship that the people of God have with one another. Above all, supremely, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep exercising what you have. And what is it that they do have? They are to practice the love that they have for one another. And they are in possession of this love because in their relationship with the Lord Jesus, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God is poured into our hearts. It comes like a, an outpouring and a downpouring that fills our hearts in the moment of coming to, to know the Lord Jesus. It is something that we already have in our hearts. And it is that love that we are to exercise for one another. There is something reciprocal that we should be doing. And it is your love for me, your love for others, and my love for you, and others' love for you as well. It's that sense of responsibility, that sense of loving and being devoted to each other. And John makes it quite clear to us in his first epistle that this is a direct mark or characteristic of the children of God. We know, he says, that we are passed from death to life because we love one another. It's as simple as that. It's the expression of God's love in our hearts for one another. We receive the grace of God and we we're superabound, perhaps, in our love for the Lord Jesus. But in equivalent measure, our love should be horizontal in our love for those who are the children of God. 
And John goes on in chapter 5 to, to say something in addition to that, that if we love the Father, our Father in heaven, who is the Father of the children of God, if we love him as our Father, then we love everyone else who know him as their Father. And the love is such that it's not going to be something that's superficial. The superficiality of, of love. What a, a great shame that that can be the case. The kind of love that we are called upon to, to exercise is to love one another earnestly. And the, the simple picture of, of loving earnestly is having something stretched out to do its very limit so that it's, it finds exercise to that very limit and the limits are the love, the extent of the love with which God has loved ourselves. And so I take my love for the Lord Jesus. And I love him with all of my heart because he is my saviour who, who loved me and, and gave himself for me. And I take that, the measure of that love that I have for him and make it the measure of the love that I have for all of the people of God. To love one another earnestly. It speaks of sincerity. It speaks of something that's heartfelt. And Peter is, is recognizing that because of the world that they are living in, that their love for one another will be tested. And we read in Matthew chapter 24 where when times get, get hard for the people of God, that there is the danger of the love of many growing cold. It's something that's completely unnatural, but it's something that can happen in the midst of the trials, the difficulties, and the challenges of life. And if we are honest, we, we know that that's how it works. Let me love when things are going well, and it's so easy. Let things go wrong, and it's a real test of my love. It's not uh, so much a test of me declaring that I love, but it's a test of the sincerity of my love. That my declaration of, of love is contradicted by what I have in my heart. The love of people growing cold. Do we understand that today? Our love for one another growing cold. Our love for the Lord Jesus growing cold because of the world in which we live. We, we are called upon to rescue ourselves from that day and to love one another earnestly. To ensure that we recover that very thing that shows who we are and that gives strength to the gathered people of God. Remember, the, the focus of Peter is to show them where their strength lies to live in the world. And here is the, the essence, the very nerve center of, of, of their strength in the world 
is that they will love one another sincerely, earnestly. And how are people going to know that? How in this Christian community are they to know that, that there is genuine love for one another? Since he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love acknowledges, and Peter acknowledges, the reality of sin. And he also acknowledges the variety of sin. He knows that in their world, as in our world, that as we journey on through life, there will be times of failing, times when our behavior will not meet the standards of the Word of God, times when we fail to reach the goal of the Word of God, and lose our way. In other words, times when our relationship with God breaks down because of our sin. But the focus of Peter here is not so much on the sinfulness of our hearts. His focus is on social sins. The breakdown in relationships between The children of God. That's his focus. It's what happens out there, not what happens in here. Of course, what happens out there reflects what's going on in here. But his concern is the social aspect of of the life of the people of God and the things that threaten that. And the threat to that is the sins that affect their relationships together. And he is telling them that This earnest love covers a multitude of sins. Covers them over. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 3 about about the veil being on the mind of of the, the Jews who failed to see the Lord Jesus. There's a veil. Their minds are covered. Something similar here that What love does, it covers over the sins of those who have sinned against us. Love is simply the mechanism that heals that relationship, that does does not allow allow the sin to to fester and to work away on damaging the relationship between the people of God, the relationship with each other. Love takes immediate action to cover over what has gone wrong and to show forgiveness. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians 13, and that great message of love that, that, he, that he has written for them, he says, Love keeps no record of wrongdoings. That's a characteristic of love. Naturally, when somebody wrongs us, we want to keep a record of it. We want to write it so that we won't forget it. That, that's our response, and we see that kind of response in society. It's, it's an unforgiving society because we are unforgiving by nature. But the children of God are so very different. 
if they are loving one another as they should, then forgiveness is the beauty that maintains the relationships with each other. And we can hear the Lord Jesus on, on the Sermon on the Mount speaking about people's relationships with each other. If you are offering your gift at the altar, if you are going to worship God, offering a gift at the altar, and your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, be reconciled to your brother, and then come with your gift. It's a, a tremendous message from the Lord Jesus that, that says to me today that if I hold a grudge against anyone, I should not be here. And if somebody holds a grudge against me, I should not be here. My duty is to, to be reconciled before I come to worship God. And the, what's implied in that is that unless I do that, my worship is not acceptable to God. It places this whole idea of forgiving one another into the context of, of, of our worship so that it makes it an urgent thing. I cannot put this off. It's perhaps the hardest thing that I'm ever going to do. But I'm called upon by Peter in this letter. I'm called upon by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to ensure that even if I've done nothing wrong myself, but somebody has wronged me, to ensure that relationships are restored and put the way that they should be. And when that happens, there's a beauty in it. There are emotions in it. And the overriding emotion that comes to the very surface when we do that is the love of Christ for us. Because when we forgive, it awakens within us that sense of how great the forgiveness of God is in Christ Jesus. And it's emotional in the sense that it, it brings us to the place where we recognize and realize our own sinnership and the greatness of God's mercy and of God's forgiveness. The same writer in this passage says this about forgiveness. What Peter is saying here might be understood by way of analogy. Love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from one caught on fire. Similarly, as long as oxygen is present, forest fires rage. But if we could take the air away, the blaze would settle down and great tracts of land would be saved. May we love in this way. To take the oxygen out of sin, to cover over the sins that, that spoil our relationships, and to ensure that when there is wrongdoing, that love covers them over, and to ensure that instead of that, we don't allow the hatred that wrongdoing stirs up in our hearts to use these very sins 
to flog those who have sinned against us and to ensure that we use them to remind them day by day of what they have done wrong. How far removed that is from what Peter requires here and from what Jesus requires and from, from the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors, those who have sinned against us. There is that dependence and there is this overriding need for devotion. And I was going to say something about duty for hospitality and something about the duty for serving. But we can remind ourselves that we have that duty in verse 9 to show hospitality and we have that duty in verse 10, each of us, to serve according to the gift that God has given to us. But I'm going to close by sharing this story that is written in the book, The Men of the Lewis. The Men of Lewis. It's about the, the church in the 19th century. And there was a Donald Morrison from Fypenny and Ness, and he was speaking at the Friday question meeting at a communion season. And he was giving uh, marks of the child of God uh, and speaking especially about the practice of loving one another. And he said this, he adduced as a mark of grace the two bags which every Christian carried. One bag was in his, on his breast and the other on his back. If he heard any mark of favor about a fellow Christian, he put it in the bag that hung open to his eyes. If an unfavorable word came along, he threw it in the bag behind. It was forgiving and it was covering over, rejoicing in the grace of God, but covering over the sins of the people of God. So we're reminded about the need to, to take the oxygen from sin. We're reminded about the need to, to cover over the sin. And we're reminded about the need to, to put behind us the things that the devil uses to, to trap us and to trip us and to, to spoil our relationships with each other and need to let our dependence upon God flow into our lives with all of the love of God and to give to us the strength, not so much the personal strength that is part of it, but to give the strength to us as a Christian community to be able to stand and face up to the opposition of a culture that is more and more against Christ's church in our day. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we bow before you and your word reminds us of who we are. It exposes our failings to us and it challenges us as to the way in which we should live as your people in the world. Help us, O oh Lord, to receive the challenges of your word. Help us to pray that it would pierce our hearts every time that we hear it and help us to respond in accordance with its exhortations and to do so as those who have your grace and your love in our hearts and help us to love you with all of our hearts and to love our neighbour as ourselves. Bless you, Lord, as we pray and hear us. Having mercy, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. The closing psalm is Psalm number 26 in the Scottish Psalter. It's on page 235.
Psalm number 26 in the Scottish Psalter. At verse number 8. The habitation of thy house, Lord, I have loved well. Yea, in that place I do delight, where doth thine honour dwell. From verse 8 to the end of the psalm, to God's praise. Habitation of thy house, Lord, I have loved well. In that place I do delight, where doth thy honor dwell? With Stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.